0: Growing up in Bulgaria back in those days, it was so different than what kids are doing today. As a founder, you embrace failure. biggest failure has been overthinking too much about the negative that's happening around me and what people will think of me about what I do. People were looking down on me, partly because of the bias that I was coming from Eastern Europe, Hey, Peter. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Madhusio. How are you doing yourself? I'm so happy to have you here on the show. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here as well. And thanks for inviting me and congrats on launching your podcast. I'm really excited to see how it develops. Our
1: pleasure. I'm a big fan of context. And I believe all our stories that we have um, without context don't mean a whole lot. So I want you to, st- I want both of us to start with the earliest context that we can have of your life like what was growing up in Bulgaria like and all of that so if you can walk us through the earliest context of your life and how you became whoever you are today
0: certainly well uh, it's been quite a journey i have to say growing up I'm in sure bulgaria yeah i mean growing up in bulgaria back in those days it was so different than what kids are doing today i mean we didn't have any tech we didn't have any well co- we had computers but they were so basic uh, when i was in my teens but it was very peaceful Um, he was, I was always eager at trying things and exploring. And I think that's never left me. Uh, But it's been quite an exciting journey growing up, learning from my parents. Uh, my father, who started a business when I was really young, he started it late in life, but I was very young. I was in my early teens and that really sort of sparked my desire for entrepreneurship. And that's never left me. And it's been quite a journey since then moving to the UK when I was only 15 alone with, without knowing anyone to study. Uh, it was an opportunity wow. I had to take and building businesses ever since for more than 20 years. It's been interesting.
1: You mentioned something very powerful. So I think as far as my little research go, I think most people in Eastern Europe, they're like very close to their fathers and the family structure is pretty close. I don't think that's the case in the West particularly, but uh, what was it like working with a dad who's a full-time businessman? And especially in, in your teens when a lot of kids are looking for a lot of time and attention and then not seeing him or you know, taking you to the park or something like that. But, you know, him building out a business
0: and then you taking over that business. So how did that feel like? It was very exciting. I mean, just like other kids at the time, I was doing a lot of things. I mean, I was studying, but I was enjoying playing sports. I was actually playing competitive basketball at the time as well, the local team. Um, when my father started business, he the whole family got involved. My mother got involved, I got involved. I think I was only twelve when he started it. It was late in life for him. He had a long career as a search researcher and working for a Nipic institute, working in industrial ceramics. Uh, and because he was back in those days, he was still it was after the end of the communist era when most people could not start businesses. It was all about traditional careers. So when he started, he experimented with a number of different ideas before he settled on one that worked, which was to import and distribute wholesale uh, automotive consumables and uh, accessories. Uh, and we got involved even with the previous ideas. We were sort of helping and packing and talking to potential customers. And I found all of that really exciting. I mean, I was, I don't know what, what got into me, but I just thought the whole experience and trying to build this was really cool. And uh, and I learned a ton as well. And it also gave me an opportunity to be with my dad a lot because before that in his job, uh, I hardly saw him. He used to work long hours and it was really end of the day. And when I saw him and building a business, it was an opportunity for me to spend more time with him. It was, that was brilliant. Amazing. You, you mentioned something, uh,
1: just want to pick your brain on that, uh, that was end of the communist era. It was in Bulgaria and then most of the people they have the idea was like, we're going to start a convention job or something. That's a career that everybody would take. To me, it looks like your father had that fire in him, like, I don't want to do this thing. I want to be an outlier or something like that. So uh, can you walk us through what time and what were the conditions in Bulgaria at that point in time feels? Uh, so today, it's like a very modern country, stuff like that. People are amazing. It's a beautiful place to go and visit. Uh, but I'm sure it was different than it is today, right?
0: Very different. It was totally different. It was a time when many were trying to do something different and there was a boom in businesses. Uh, In my father's case, he retired from his traditional career. So he was 62 when he started. And I think for him, just like for us, it was quite difficult to start businesses financially because people didn't have a lot of money on the side. But He managed to do it a little bit by bit, starting is really small, and it grew. But I think, I mean, I was too young to remember the difference between what life was before and after the communist ruling ended, which was in 1989. I was only seven. Oh, sorry, eight, actually. Wow. So I have some vague memories, but not quite a lot. I have more memories from a bit later on, which is the exciting period of growth.
1: I'm sure. I heard something, and again, we were just... Just doing a little bit of research on the guests of the podcast. And then uh, one of the things that really stood out was you started your first business at the age of 13. Uh, So what was that business? And then uh, how did you come across like, okay, I'm just a kid, not going to go play in the park, not going to go. Usually people would want to have a career in in basketball because you were playing competitively or something. And then you said, no, I want to do business. So um, what was the shift looks like? And then just tell us a little bit more about that business if you can
0: sure so i was getting really involved in my business my father's business at the time so the business was only about two years old it was small uh, essentially selling automotive consumables imported into the big petrol chains or the four car shops that they have and, and also other retailers so i my father was really keen to get me involved and i sort of i started from the warehouse preparing and packing orders and helping others there, um, but then it moved to different aspects of the business, and how money works, how does the sort of profit loss, all these things I found really fascinating and the idea behind the business it actually spun out of my father's business at the time we we mostly imported stuff from Western Europe from manufacturers and big wholesalers, and they used to send a lot of swag, so they sent promotional pens, cups. Mouse mats, cats, caps, T-shirts, you name it. They were all branded with yeah. their own brand. And they were sending boxes and boxes of this with every shipment. And they were just collecting dust in storage because we could only give away so many for to our customers. So one day I was looking at this. And as I was going with my mom and dad shopping around local shops, we used to have a lot of grocery stores. Not so much big supermarkets like nowadays. And I saw exactly the same things sold in shops, and uh, and I thought, well, wow. we got all these boxes. I mean, there was probably a whole, as much as a whole room full of boxes. Why not sell them? Uh, and I just great idea, exactly. So I thought, my dad, what he thought about it? He said, yeah, maybe, yeah, well, give it a go. I mean, I think he was more keen for me to try something rather than thinking that it's actually going to work. So long and be, I, I got a. A sample pack with me. I knew sort of made a note from shops what similar things were sold for. So I thought, let's make them a bit cheaper. Uh, my father helped me and sort of explained the concept, how much profit you sh- probably I can expect shops to make. So what I need to offer them for. So I went around local shops, starting with the ones that we know, we knew the owners and it worked. They started ordering. I'm pretty sure some ordered because they were just enjoy seeing a little 13 year old trying to sell stuff and do things yeah but over time i faced rejection of course and it wasn't easy but i just thought every time i got an order i was like man this is working and this is so cool i'm making money and my father told me by the way anything i make out of selling this i keep it and like any kids that was probably the beginning of the computer games boom Uh, i mean they were really crap games at the time but still for me i was addicted and i and my thinking was if i sell this and get money i can buy myself computer games so yeah pretty good so i kept going and to my surprise i think in about four or five months i was making as much as the salary of two people in my dad's business and i kept growing and growing and of course it's it wasn't going to last very long, but what I found afterwards, one of the shop owners put me in touch with a local company that was printing swag. So I started actually offering to the shops. Well, can, do you want us to make you these products, but branded with your own store brand? And they said, yes. So I actually expanded on this because I knew that. All of the stuff my father had in storage was not going to last forever. <laughs> I was selling them, and I was going to go. So it expanded into actually making orders and coordinating between shops and a local print shop that could print us. So that's how it uh, it went for about two and a half years, I believe. And then there was about that time, actually less than two two and a half years, about two years. And it was at that time when I moved to the UK, I got an opportunity to study in the school i gave that to a friend of my dad's and he continued that he expanded it for a while and then he sold it off
1: so you uh, wow amazing story how important is it you have a father who supports you like that in in your life early in your life
0: i think it's really important uh, i mean my dad like everybody's not without his faults uh, resting to be he passed away four years ago but he i think one thing that he taught me that uh, was really important in the early stages to believe in myself and try things. I think he realized throughout his career and life that he could not experiment and try different things because of the system. But he experimented and tried things late in his life when the system broke down and became democracy. So he told me to be brave and just believe in myself and try things and it experience different things and i think that sort of stuck with me later in life but uh, it was great i was i'm so grateful that i I had this opportunity to experience this early in life and who knows where i'll be today if i didn't have this experience
1: absolutely i think a a lot of the people who eventually get into the business people who actually start early and then people who actually start late the difference is having a different support system that you know somebody Having a a mom or a dad who is in business world quite early on, those kids kind of race different. That's what I feel like. Uh, Not in terms of like any case, not in terms of uh, any particular attributes or traits or something like that, but I think uh, particularly they have a higher threshold of failure and they're able to take more risk compared to the kids who don't have that good of a support system from family or somebody else. Uh, they actually have to conjure a whole lot of efforts. They have to be like really, really strong before they can do anything like in in, in that life, right? And I can see uh, in like all of the early stories that you talked about, it's just all centered around your dad. And it must have been amazing having a dad who supports you through the system. So yeah, I think that's a very powerful thing. Before we jump into uh, how how the life is in London and all that, I want to ask you one one minor question. Uh, particularly about Eastern European markets. So you've been in in London for quite some time. You've been in this industry for quite some time. How do you the two market differs from each other, like Eastern Europe and the Western Europe, and like what's the difference feels like?
0: I think Eastern Europe it's evolved really rapidly, I'll say, especially in the last ten years. For a long time, Eastern Europe was quite underestimated by Western Europe. Uh, and I faced this myself when I came to London young and when people heard where I'm, I am from, I was sort of looked down, people looked down on me. And and that was a lot because we didn't have all these success stories in, from Eastern Europe that we have today. Yeah. I think there is a tremendous amount of talent in Eastern Europe. They're very eager to succeed. I think because generally Eastern Europe is a lot poorer than Western Europe and Bulgaria is probably the bottom end of okay. that scale. But also because of the, I think certainly for the countries like Bulgaria that are part of the EU, it helps a lot to develop infrastructure and and bring foreign investment. So it's generally Eastern Europe is growing at a rapid pace. I think probably more rapid than some countries in Western Europe. Uh, And it's great to see. There's still a long way to go. Uh,
1: Yeah, absolutely. I did not have the discussion planned out. Or like didn't even think about him. We're gonna ask this question, but we eventually start talking about Eastern Europe in earlier days. It's
0: Romania in Eastern Europe, and you probably have sense like where I'm going with that. It is. Uh, it's a market yeah. that is really strong. It has some notable successes like UiPath that started there, which I'm sure started yeah. by Daniel Deans, who I really admire. He's an amazing founder. But yeah, yeah it's it's really strong in tech as well as an So
1: I think. Uh, there's like two brothers, no, notorious brothers or like whatever you want to call that, the Andrew Tate and his brother, and like they're from Romania. By the looks of that, it feels like, uh, if I were to draw any judgment or something like that, it kind of feels like people are very smart, they're hardworking, um, and they're, towards certain degree, they're like fighters. They can turn things around, but they're hardworking people, I think. So, uh, looking to you, listening to your story gives kind of the same sense, right? So, um, is, is that like common? in those countries mainly because they're like poor and you have to strive the best of the best, get survived, survival of the best, or something like that? Or is it more like, no, there's like, every now and then there's a few people who are survivors and then not everybody else is the same?
0: I don't think it's widespread. What's common in Eastern Europe is that there is a big divide between big cities and the rest of the country because that level of education is lower compared to the West and also, Whereas in the West, living in the countryside is amazing. It's got some lovely towns and villages. In Eastern Europe, the developed part of the Eastern world tends to be focused on the bigger cities. Uh, So when you go to the countryside, it tends to be massively underdeveloped and poorer compared to the big cities. So you find people with strong drive and eager to do something great with their life. They come from anywhere. I know people who come from tiny villages. But they end up moving to the big cities for the opportunity to educate themselves and to, to take advantage of opportunities. But it, it's not widespread. I definitely say that they are, there is a percentage of people who are really, you can see that they are their winners and some are on their way to becoming big winners. But it's not a widespread thing for anything.
1: Because of the lack of opportunity. I
0: think so. Yes. Mainly. Definitely. And also the system. I mean, that's uh, Eastern Europe also has its own biases and how people are brought up and. Some, a lot of things that I, as a founder, I needed to unlearn later in life. But I also, I was blessed by having parents that were very, they want me to experience my own life and not be troubled by what people think and the journey I had to follow. Many people essentially followed the journey that their parents took and then their grandparents. Um, yeah. but I'm still very strong out there. It's, that There is entrepreneurial spirit, but it's not a massive percentage of the population. Yeah, okay.
1: You said as a founder you had to learn a whole lot of... You have to unlearn a whole lot of things. Like What were those things? And why do you think you had to unlearn them?
0: Like many, I... Especially in school. I mean, school was so traditional back then. And alongside the traditional subjects everybody's thought about career and what do you do with life later. and That whole learn skills, educate yourselves, get a job, progress, retire. That whole cycle. There was also a lot of bias around hard work. So people that are working really hard succeed in life. Well, I don't believe that is true. I think it's people who work hard but smart because you can work very hard and not achieve anything in life. Or not anything, but achieve much less than if you work smart. So these are just a few examples that I believe they're global. They're just not just in Eastern Europe, but as founders, it's uh, and that's why some find it really difficult to go from a traditional career to entrepreneurship because the whole belief system from so many things about failure. And in a career, if you're failing, that's a massive problem. As a founder you embrace failure. If you don't fail and learn from failure, you don't progress. So these are little things which are very different when you become an entrepreneur. And they're global. And not, not just in Eastern Europe.
1: Okay. What was your biggest failure?
0: I would say my biggest failure has been overthinking too much about the negative that's happening around me and what people will think of me about what I do and that was especially strong when I was in my late teens uh, in the UK and I faced so much rejection because partly because I was I had big ambitions and I was trying things and people were looking down on me partly because of the bias that I was coming from Eastern Europe and I think that led to me I was just not brave enough and overthinking too much if I do this what are people going to think of and later I realized that, oh, this is crap. I mean, it's just that people that yeah. look down, people that are negative, they're always in life, even when you progress. So I think that was my biggest failure that I just let too long of a time pass before I just said, I'm just going for this and I'm just going to try it. And if it fails, so be it. I'll move on to the next thing. It's more of a mental like, failure. Um, I think more of a mental failure than actual Start-up entrepreneurial ones.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that a couple of times. Uh, what was it like being a Bulgarian kid in a UK? Uh, and that, and, you know, I can just imagine the discriminations. Uh, so yeah, what was it like a foreign kid in inside UK with big dreams and like nobody to support those big dreams?
0: It was hard in the beginning. I mean, when I came, I went to a boarding school in the East of England. That was a small town in the middle of nowhere. Very few foreigners. We had a small group of of students from Bulgaria. But later on, when I moved to London, uh, that was in 2000, I found it easier because it was more multicultural. uh, Nowhere near as it is today. But it was hard. I think the fact that I was studying at a prestigious university, I went to Imperial College at the time, and that certainly helped. But... I think that was a there was a period that was really dark where I was almost on the verge of going back home a few times over a period of about two years um and how old were you at that point in time how so at were the you? time I was nineteen when I was in London and I was studying wow. I went through a really hard time because It was really expensive to be a student in London as an overseas student. And Bulgaria, there was a huge economic crisis in Eastern Europe at the time. So my father's business suffered big losses. It went down quite a lot. So for a period of time, I really struggled financially. I had to take a job. I was working like 80 hours a week and trying to study at the same time. It In the end, it was too much of a pain. So I went back home. I dropped out uh, and later returned about two years later. But it was... I got an opportunity. I mean, I always wanted to come back to the UK and I had a so you like the countries, you like the opportunities, you like the whole thing, but it was the
1: circumstances that kind of made it so difficult to stay and pursue the dream. Yes.
0: It was difficult, but I, the big turning point was when I decided if I just think about all the problems, they're not going to go away. I need to go out there, meet people, explore things, learn internet was still not that developed at the time as it is today but I, I just went and learned so much about entrepreneurship about business about marketing different topics and I started going to events and interestingly amongst all the rejection and people that were looking down I found some amazing people at events and, and they opened doors for me and that's how the whole difficult period sort of started going towards the end and, th- and that was at the time, it was close to that time when the whole financial troubles happened with the university, but I knew that I was, I wanted to come back and continue that. So I think that's what brought me back. I came back to, to do a different degree, but it was really those key people that I met who later I sort of, I kept in, in contact with. And that's how my entrepreneurial journey continued. Uh, it was really opportunities through them that and then meeting more people and it's been a quite a shift since then. But it, I went through some periods of
1: I'm sure. But the thing about tough times is like they, some, somebody said this thing that success makes a character and then I, I, it's, it's a failure to build the character, some, something like that, I think. But it's a failure that builds the whole character and then whoever you turn on and become your life. Okay, interesting. I want to ask you about something that you have in your bio, which is kind of a cool thing. How did you end up working with um, Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan? And then uh, what is he like? What's the whole story behind that? So if you can walk us through that. Cool.
0: Yeah, Uh, it was interesting. I mean, it's. I think the origin of that is I've always been a big believer in giving back. And throughout my founder journey, I've always taken time to help others and Found, uh, more lately in recent years mentoring founders i've been in doing some stuff with accelerators working with charities so it was a friend of mine who uh, highlighted an opportunity and put me forward to because one of the multiple advisory boards that the mayor has they had a, a, a new they had a sort of a relaunch. And that was the Jobs and Skills Business Partnership, Um, which sort of it was the new, and used, used to be called a different name before. And that's all about working with the mayor to connect business and the government and local government, and be, be act as the voice for jobs and skills. So the mayor has a big agenda as part of his overall vision for London to. Help Londoners get the skills and the jobs that they deserve, and get put all Londoners into good jobs. So that part of the board is sort of comprises people from different sectors, as well as the big lawyer bodies, and we meet regularly to uh, to discuss various initiatives that the mayor is launching, as well or planning to launch. And it's headed by his deputy mayor for business, Rajesh Agarwal. So the way, for me, it was an exciting opportunity when. They had openings on the board, so a friend of mine sort of put me forward. I applied. It, it took a while, but I was uh, I was admitted into the board. And for me, it's an exciting opportunity because this way I can as part of giving back, I can, because it's a big one. I can contribute and have my time and effort as put in as part of that leverage, so we can help many. And as I sort of bring especially connection to the tech sector and startups. And of course, digital skills are so important. They are a very big part of the overall plans. So that's how it all started. It started through a friend of mine who highlighted an opportunity, and I'm really, really excited to be part of it. I don't work with the mayor on a day-to-day basis. Uh, We coordinate mainly through his deputy mayor for business because he is chairing the group. But uh, There's a lot that's happening, and we have some interesting plans that I sort of put forward that I'm sure we will be working on. But it's a, it's a great opportunity, and I'm I'm happy, and I really respect the mayor for what he's doing. I think he's doing some really good work in many aspects of the growth in London. And jobs and skills are so important. There's a lot of work, a lot of people who are struggling, who who need the opportunities. And some of the programs, like the boot scheme boot camps, which are now going strong, and many other programs, I think are going to make a real difference. So I'm glad to be part of that.
1: No, that that's very good. So just another question that, you know, that you brought up is the London of today feels like they have a higher threshold of accepting a foreigner, right? Uh, you look at Sadiqa. he has a Pakistani background. You look at this deputy, he has an Indian background. Uh, and, and I think the ex-prime minister had a similar background as well. I think and the current prime minister or the ex-prime minister had uh, yes, a similar background. Yes, the current one, yes. Uh, and the current one, yeah. Not, not Boris, sorry, yeah, the, the current one. Uh, how do you think uh, London of today is different from the London of when you were a kid? And if anybody who is a foreigner comes to the UK, do you think he's going to face the same challenges or like not even close to that?
0: To be honest, I wasn't so involved as I am today in the London ecosystem uh, years ago. So I only observed from my own experience, but definitely today it's one of the most multicultural and open cities anywhere in the world. I think anybody who comes to london feels welcome i think the big shift especially in the tech sector which was not existent back then well it was existing yeah. but it was tiny there are so many success stories and not just founders but people who have built incredible careers today they, they've companies that have grown because of their leadership and i'm talking people who came from overseas and it's the same in other parts of the world. I mean, the U.S. has look at the big companies, the big success stories. A vast majority of those are immigrant founders. It's been, it's definitely more accepting than it was years ago. But it's, I find it's extremely friendly nowadays. It's really, I wouldn't say nobody will face challenges. There are challenges, but they are nowhere near the what I faced years ago. Why
1: do you think? Immigrants founder have seen more success compared to the native ones.
0: That's a good question. I think, I mean, I've heard a number of stories and some of the more, the really successful ones, not just in London, but some stories in the US as well. People who come from overseas from really difficult backgrounds. They've been in, in such a dark hole that there's really no deeper to go than where they've been. So they have the drive and motivation that many others who have a a better start in life face. So I think it's down to motivation to succeed from coming from a difficult background. But also I think it's places like London, places like the big clubs in the US, there are magnets for talented people. So people recognize the opportunity because you get talented people all over the world. I mean, I know amazing people from all across the world. But they realize that to to make something with their talent, they need to be where things are happening and op- opportunities are. So I think that's the reason why we see so many in London, in Paris, in all across the the Western world.
1: Okay, and I think that is a fair condition. It's just like the circumstances and the personality or the persona, the character that overseas people have just being so talented and not having enough opportunities uh, to fulfill the dreams or something like that and they eventually come to the land that has the opportunities uh, provides the infrastructure and then those people just the sky is the limit for those people so so yeah i think that makes sense so uh, and they don't give up uh, and they
0: typically don't give up yeah they're really driven i mean i know people i know a guy from india who came from a really poor village i mean my goodness he's a He's like a fireball. Going, nothing can stop him. It's amazing. Just the focus and just the motivation is so hard, so so big. Exactly. It
1: is like you just can't break me, right? Something like that. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: And you particularly don't find these traits in uh, in people who kind of grew up in with all these privileges. It's just like, yeah, just life is just normal thing. Uh, yeah.
0: I, I mean, I know Westerners who are really driven. I think it's all about upbringing. I mean, I know people who were born in wealthy families and their upbringing was different. But they were raised in a way to respect people and to get through your own challenges in life. And those people can look achieve, go on to achieve really good things. But for others who found it very easy in life earlier on, they don't seem to be as driven as much as those who come from a more difficult background. It's difficult to generalize. It's very difficult to generalize. It's, uh, it's very individual. Yeah.
1: What drives you to get up every day and striving for that success that you have in mind? And I'm sure you have seen quite a lot of success. And then, yeah, what drives you? What motivates you to just get up, go grind every day?
0: For me, one thing I really discovered is over the years is the most important thing is to be passionate and really enjoy every day enjoy what you're doing and i just love the founder journey i mean for me the exciting building something with that team spirit and building something and exploring and creating something that makes a difference to me that gives me the energy it used to be i used to be driven by money like in my young days like many but that over time changed. yeah, yeah. that changed a lot over time yeah, you know. now it's really I'm still don't have a massive win like some of the ones that you see in headlines. I've had a few successes. One is a seven figure, one is a low eight figure, uh, which are brilliant. Uh, but it's not so much the money. It's really the journey and creating something that makes a difference. That's what gets me going. And, and just being in that tech space, I wasn't always in tech. A lot of my background is non traditional businesses. But being in tech is just a different world, different experience and, and it's the whole buzz and excitement that keeps me going every day.
1: so you think eight figures is not a big success. okay, we'll we'll come to
0: that later on. It, it is I mean, it is I mean, I haven't exited. that's actually it's it's my that that business is my father's business, which was very small, but then I scaled I took over and scaled it. so it's not exited, but it's uh, it's definitely a good success, a big success for me for sure. But it's not—it's nothing like uh, those that many aspire for and the ones that we know and see the headlines. I've got a good feeling that what we're building now in my current startup has the potential to go very big, but that's a different topic.
1: Let's talk about what you're building today.
0: Sure. So it's called Smart Migrator. It's a really interesting idea in the cloud space. And it came from my cousin who was originally co-founder for a period of time, but then he had to step aside because of personal reasons, and and also he found the founder journey to be a lot tougher than he expected. So when you look at clouds, I mean everybody's talking about clouds. Uh, well, everybody's talking about generative AI right now, and AI in general. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But
1: it's, it's it's all about AI. It's not
0: possible without cloud. So cloud has always it has been a big thing for years but it's still in the very early days and by cloud i mean not just using cloud services but really becoming cloud native moving your whole rather than running a on-premise server room with servers or data or in a data center operating in AWS or Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure getting there is a big challenge for many because it's extremely complex for most established companies i mean it's, it requires skill sets that are be very, very difficult to find. I mean, the people with the right skills and experience, there really are very few out there. And because of all that, it becomes extremely expensive. So when you look at companies that are in the cloud, there are either startups that start in the cloud or very large organizations that have the deep pockets to afford to migrate. And then all the other challenges to follow on to manage the cloud correctly. So all of this right now is happening mostly with consultancies, Uh, some of the big names, a couple dozen big names that serve big enterprises. And most of the effort is manual. So it really relies on brute force. It takes a long time, full of problems, and very expensive. So my cousin comes from that world. So he was, uh, for many years... Cloud migration started as an engineer, then architect, then lead at Hewlett Packard Enterprise over many, over 16 years. He was one of the first architects at HP in Europe back many years ago. That was before the days of cloud, moving data centers from one place to another. So he had this idea that we're going through the same pain. I mean, he was talking to people that he worked with. We're going through the same pain over and over again, planning migrations, assessing infrastructure. Going through all the challenges of delivery, then it doesn't work in the cloud. Then we've got to troubleshoot, go back, try and figure out what's gone wrong. Well. Why not just automate the whole process and make it simple? So that's where the idea came from. And what got me really excited was that nobody was looking at SMBs because too small, not really interesting for, for consultancies. Yep. The, those that sort of built some boutique consultancies. They're extremely expensive. So the vast majority of SMBs, they cannot afford their cost. And that's a huge market because there's millions and millions of them out there. And they deserve just as much to benefit from cloud as the bigger enterprises. So we embarked on this journey to take all the experience from my cousin and a number of other guys. We have quite a sizable team of really experienced architects on boards. And create a product that really that automates the whole process. So if you can imagine a product that you just go through a simple step-by-step process, it assesses everything you have, wherever it is on premise, what could be in another cloud, and then it migrates everything, optimizes everything, and launches it in your cloud of choice. All with a few clicks. And and it's it brings acceleration. It reduces, eliminates the human error. That's the big problem for many, and it makes it cost-effective, so it's affordable for anybody, including small SMBs. So that's really that's what we build, and, and the vision is to integrate cloud management automation into that, so making it into a single platform that anybody from Joe down the street running a restaurant to the larger ones can utilize to migrate from on-premise to cloud or between clouds and then manage the cloud on, the, on an autopilot and having it all efficient. Sorry, it's a little bit longer than I, I was expecting wow. it, but oh, that's no, in no, essence it, what we're doing.
1: No, that's amazing. Uh, it's a complex thing that you're building, and it has to be a complex explanation for that.
0: Man, mm-hmm. it's so complex, you wouldn't believe. It. I mean, we're still, in the early days, we have a product that works for AWS, but it is insanely complex. I mean, it, it looks so easy when you see it in, in action, what goes behind it is incredible. It's beyond my understanding. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So
1: uh, just thinking of the same cloud infrastructure thing and then you brought up some amazing point like how complex it is. To me, it feels like you guys were using AI long before the AI became cool and chat GPT came out and the whole generative AI boom started to happen. So uh, how true is that statement that you guys were like working on AI? Even before people people get to know about that, and even before it was cool, they say that.
0: Not really, to be honest. I mean, we have we've doubled into AI, but not not as much as I wished because of the lack of resources. We're still bootstrapping, but going forward, it's going to be heavily driven by AI in multiple areas. But we actually haven't doubled, and to me, especially the machine learning, which will be a, will play a major part in what we do. It's still a bit of a mystery. for me. I'm not an expert in it, so I actually haven't. We have. I don't have a lot of AI in my background in the past, but I'm I'm learning it. I'm all I'm fascinated by all the various types of AI and generative AI, which everybody's talking about now. It's it's exciting.
1: Yeah, uh, one thing that I that excites me the most about about generative AI is so previously, if you have to start a tech company or a SaaS company or something like that. Common sense would say uh, you need to learn to code or you need to have enough money to afford a developer or two or something like that, right? And then you need to find, obviously, a designer and then you need to build something. Then you need to start selling it. And I think even the start selling it quickly part came later down the road. People usually start like building this thing from ground up. Once it's there, then people start marketing it, but kind of different shifted from that. But even, uh, even now, a few years ago, everybody was doing the same thing. So you got an idea, you find a couple of devs, or you start learning how to code, and then you start building something. But the best part about generative AI is that learning curve has decreased like significant. It is like so I can go on. And Chat GPT is like it's, it's a word of the mouth. Like everybody's talking about that. It's, it's just the name of the game. But uh, all these other startups came out, and I was like looking at one of those. It's just like you, you do the prompt, and it can design you the whole mock-up, like the whole editable designs in Figma, and just like that. If I look at that on Generative AI, and that's my take on that, the The learning curves has come down significantly. And now if you're not starting a business and you had an idea and you're like not starting that, I think it's just you standing in your way. Right? I mean, there's like no other reason for that because it's like everything is like becoming super accessible, super easy, super dumb. You, you just like have an idea, just go talk about it. Now you have, now you got the tools to build it in a week. You got the tools to start marketing that really quickly. You don't have to be an expert in anything. You just need to have a courage to start something. Right. Yeah. So what do you think, uh, and how do you think AI is going to change the whole entrepreneurial journey that usually people have uh, from traditional businesses or even in tech industry? Uh, how do you think AI is going to transform all of that?
0: That's a great question. Uh, I mean, it's, you're absolutely right. I think generative AI is bringing a whole new revolution to the marketplace. Aside from the hype, which is very strong, I think that's going to cool down a little bit over time. And a lot of, a lot is happening too fast for a lot of people, me included to comprehend it fully. <laughs> uh, but I think, no, without a doubt, it's a lot easier to start a startup and build something today than it was years ago. I mean, we went through that period when you had the old school way, you had an idea, you had to hire developers or quite often founders were technical founders. So uh, so they needed to struggle more with the marketing side rather than the development side. Then yeah. came along low code and no code and made things a lot easier. And now with, a- with generative AI, I mean, you can just spin things so fast. I mean, I'm just amazed at all the applications that I'm seeing all the time in recent weeks, just like you mentioned, but there's so much, so much more. And we actually trying to figure out how we can benefit from generative AI within our own development plans and platform. And there's multiple areas. I think that my personal opinion, and I know there's been a lot of debate about people worried about AI replacing what they do. And yes, of course, there are jobs that will disappear. New ones will be created, but there will be many that suddenly will disappear. But I think vast in the vast majority of cases, in tech especially, it will enhance people's performance and ability, and people really everybody should be embracing and learning. Absolutely. One thing that I have to say is that I think there are, there is a danger that people are jumping very fast and and not thinking about what can, what can happen later on and. One big danger is regulation. I mean, that's already we're already starting to see that it's been worked on. It is coming. There's no, no doubt about it's it because coming. there are so many concerns from privacy to security. We saw Italy banning chat GPT completely. Hopefully, that's not going to be permanent. But things are happening because it's just happening so fast for the authorities to comprehend. And there is a risk that regulations will come that can impact a lot of startups. Just like the recent Twitter API pricing changes that just completely took so many founders and solopreneurs by surprise, all the ones that built amazing tools to make the Twitter experience better. And so many have closed down because $46,000 a month, who can afford that? It's not many. So there are similar risks because if you're creating an app that's revolving around generative AI... And there are risks. these are sort of things that founders need to think about because changes will happen. But without a doubt, coming back to your overall question, everybody needs to embrace AI because it's here it's here to stay and evolve and help allies.
1: Absolutely. So I think you you brought some really great points. I think I was like reading somebody's tweet. It's like AI is not gonna cut your job, but somebody using AI is definitely a place you It's just like it's like a superhuman ability. It's like you can So uh, in a day-to-day job, in a day-to-day work, as as somebody who's like leading a team, building a product, doing the sales, marketing, that kind of stuff, it's like super helpful. You know, the accessibility is just like amazing. You give, you just need to know the right prompt. And again, obviously, you need to figure out what to do with the chat GPT or like what to do with the AI. And then it gives you like superhuman abilities. And the work gets so efficient. You get so, so much more productive with that. I have a very good question. I mean, like, meaning to ask you, just, since we started talking about smart migrator, all these, uh, every single time, if you look at that. So, so there was a dot com bubble, right? dot com came in and I think you were quite the edge when you can probably remember like what exactly has happened. It's just like everybody was jumping on the ship and then the bubble burst. And then there was this crypto bubble, the blockchain bubble. If you, if we just dial it back last year, same time, everybody was talking about two things, blockchain, NFTs. And every influencer on the planet, every entrepreneur on the planet, uh every investor on the planet is thinking about how can I get the uh, piece of the pie, even if it's like a tiniest piece of the pie or like whatever that could. Be. Not many of those NFTs are relevant today. I don't know, like they're going to be relevant. I'm, I'm sure they're going to be relevant because of the technology still stuff. And it feels like since this the start of this year, it's just like. Generative AI. Nobody's even talking about blockchain. So, uh, do you think uh, every single time this is going to be a new emerging technology came in, the previous one gets obsolete? And do you think there is some something that can replace AI?
0: I think there is always. I mean, there is always a group that follows the hype. I mean, hypes come and go, mm-hmm. just as you mentioned, all so the big ones. Yeah. But the reality is there. There is a lot of work in the background that many are doing that is just not in the headlines, just in the spotlight. AI has been here for a very long time. Just people, not everybody talked about. But it's been here for decades. Absolutely. Uh, um, Yeah. In the same way with crypto, I think, again, the big focus and hype was on Bitcoin and then NFTs. But the reality is the underlying technology, blockchain technology, has so much potential. And there are a lot of startups that are working on very interesting applications. And I think just like AI blockchain is going to grow and we'll see some very big wins, but probably not in areas people expect. I was lucky to, uh, to be a mentor in a blockchain incubator in London. I started, I was in mentoring the first cohort. I called a block dojo, it used to be called Satoshi block dojo. Now it's just block dojo, but that's all around the BSV blockchain. So not the bit BTC, but BSV, which is a mm-hmm. different type of blockchain. And there were some amazing ideas. Yes, there were some that were NFT-focused elements, but there were others that were focusing around security. There was a startup that was focusing around bringing lesser-known music artists and creating the connection the, with their fans and being able to connect with the fans, sell their music to the fans directly, and of other applications that were not the NFT craze that was out there in the spotlight. So... He's definitely here to stay, and the same with AI. I mean, generative AI is now the talk of the day. Everybody's talking about it. Over time, they will be the next thing. I think there's a yeah thing about robotics. One very cool startup that I'm following closely is Figure, that a founder called Brett Adcock is launching. with the world's first autonomous humanoid robot. It looks like thing from a sci-fi movie, and it's really cool. So he's the guy...
1: He's from Archer, right? Yes. He exactly. To, he used to run Archer. Exactly.
0: So he's got some really cool startup yeah, that amazing. came out of stealth recently. It look some find it a bit scary. I find it really exciting, but things are yeah. happening and hype cycles will come and go. But blockchain and AI, these are two transformational technologies that, that will grow and create so much. It's just not everything is in the spotlights. Yeah.
1: That's how it is. Do you think uh, like, like the Dart com people, like the NFT bubble. I'm just calling it bubble. I don't know if that was a bubble or not. But, but, you know, at some point it was like everybody just creating weird looking ape and then just selling it for like a half a minute. Yeah. But that did not happen for like everybody, right? It's just like there was only a handful of NFTs that got to that, that point in time. And a lot of people get wrecked. A lot of people wasted a whole lot of money. Uh, there was like frauds and stuff like that. Do you think like with the speed these new, AI startups are coming to the market. Most of them not going to be around by the end of the year.
0: I know for sure that, and I've been talking to some investors who are investing in this space. Many are worried by the speed at which tools are coming yeah. out and it's fast becoming very saturated, but then also some yeah. have concerns around changes, like the regulation that I mentioned. I think Like in any bubble, not bubble, but any sort of hype cycle, when something new happens, there's consolidation. Some will go away. Mm -hmm. Winners will emerge that grow fast and become bigger. Yeah, I think, I personally think that we will see some very good exits. Bigger corporates they tend to innovate by acquisition, contrary to what many people believe. That's the that's how most of them do it. That's the game. Yep. So I think we'll see some big tech that will be acquiring a lot of interesting ideas for the tech they've developed. But for sure, I think some will face a steep battle to compete in a very saturated space, in particular areas. So some will disappear, but I think a, a lot will be acquired. And I'm a big fan of uh, Acquire.com, Andrew Gazdecki and team, who are creating doing an amazing job to help smaller startups and bigger startups sell. And I think they'll be very busy.
1: I think he's doing an amazing job uh, and then he's just making it super accessible for like, you, you get a small business idea, you can set it for like five figures. You get an amazing idea. You can set it for like eight, eight figures or something like that. So, so it's just like that. Uh, and it's at the time, I do spot and a lot of those, yeah, a lot of these startups going to get acquired as well, pretty quickly as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Amazing. Uh, that's been quite a, a conversation. That we are having, but I want to just drift away. Just, just want to focus the last part of the last part of our conversation on something that you kept mentioning over again. My question is: uh, When you mentor somebody, what exactly do you offer them? Apart from because, uh, and this is just me personally thinking, a lot of people think that uh, like that they're, they're mentors and stuff like that, but when it comes to the quality, it's probably not up there. So when you mentor somebody, a young entrepreneur or someone who's coming from Bulgaria. To London today what would you offer him
0: I think it comes in two parts one is the mental part and the practical doing parts I mm-hmm. think one one thing that and I evolved I mean I was I don't claim to be a particularly good mentor it's for people to that I've mentored to say but I've also evolved over time I think the big problem that people that go into mentoring have is they enforce their own experience into how things should be done rather than letting the founders supporting the founders but letting the founders experience how it's how it's going to work for them and mm-hmm. so it's really guide providing the guidance and lessons learned through your own experience in a way that you're not enforcing how something should be done to the founders and i think that's where that's what separates a lot of men good mentors from bad mentors is they sort of they can support you, but not. They don't tell you this is the way. So when I worked with a founder, it's first of all I I show them the reality and what they can expect, so they're prepared from the mental perspective. Mm-hmm. All the hard stuff that comes with being a founder, the rejection, the difficult periods. Yeah, it's a roller coaster, and it's never ending. Oh, really sort of focus a lot on enforcing self-belief because for me, that is the single most important thing to become a successful, not just founder, but in anything. You need to believe in your own abilities. If you lose that belief, that's it. It's going to be game over. You're going to lose motivation when it gets done. So really, for people, I spend a lot of time working with them to to, under, to get them to understand their strengths and to reinforce the self-belief that they can do it. And anything is possible, and nobody can tell them they'll fail. Because it's really, they'll fail only if they believe they'll fail. So I spent quite a bit of time on that. And then the rest is really looking at the practical aspects of what they're building and their journey and their experience as well. And really sharing my things that I've learned from my experience that are potential dangers, and but letting them decide for themselves. Because everybody's got to go through the pain and the failures. It's, I can't save them the pain. I can just make them aware of things that may help them make it less painful along the way. And I think it's that light touch. It gets deep into the psychological and philosophically when we get into it, but I've got a very simple Mm -hmm. and practical approach and that I sort of guide them and I'm always around to help and answer questions and sort of, but let them go through the journey, not trying to be kind of like a, somebody holding them.
1: That's really powerful. Peter, I have a very personal question. Sure. And I hope you don't mind me asking that. Are you happy with whatever you have done, whatever you have achieved in life, wherever you are today, with the progress, with the pace, successes and failures? Are you happy with all of that?
0: I am. I learned over the years to not look back. Of course, I could have done things differently in the past, but the only thing that I look into the past is learning from it. What can I take from what's happened on my journey in the past to what I'm doing today and the future? So yeah, I'm happy with, I love being a founder. I love what I'm doing. I've got a wonderful family, an 11-year-old kid. Being a founder gives me the opportunity and the freedom to spend a lot of time with him as well, which is, is, it's a blessing. And I just, yeah, I enjoy life. It's not as easy as many would think. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah uh, not a lot of people agree to that. Yeah. You, you, you can spend a whole lot of time with your family. It's just like, it's, it's a grind, actually.
0: It is a grind, but it's, I think the freedom is the most important thing and the biggest benefit in being a founder. You've got freedom to control your time, what you're doing. You know why you're doing things, and you've got the freedom to do But yeah, I enjoy life. I owe every day working on Smart Migrator and all the other stuff I'm working on. It's exciting. You never know what the day will bring. And I, and I just enjoy life. Yeah, lots of challenges every day, but that's how it is. And I just, you've got to enjoy life because life passes quickly. And if you get stuck on not doing something you don't enjoy, you're wasting time. You should be doing something you enjoy.
1: Thank you so much, Peter. Really, really lovely talking to you. So I'm a huge fan of Steve Bartlett, uh, the Diary the CEO, a big fan of his work, big fan of the podcast. So I'm just taking a page out of his book from that particular podcast uh, and they have a tradition where they ask the guest a question that's not going to be like told in, at the end of the episode but we can ask the same question to the next guest without knowing who's going to be our next guest okay so uh, so yeah because this is the first episode so we can ask you that question uh and obviously we just don't have a good one for you but uh, you can kick things off so any question that you would like to ask to our next guest uh yeah you can share that with us obviously it's not going to be a part of the recording but yeah please just go ahead with that okay amazing uh thank you so much peter for just taking the time out today uh great chatting with you would love to see what you're going to do with smart migrator i've been following you closely for quite some time i'm in that tech space so uh, that's where my generally in interest lies so i'll just keep a close tab on that and uh, Thank you for the podcast again. No, really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. And it's been a pleasure for me as well. really appreciate the invite. And I really look forward to seeing how the postcard develops and how, what interesting Absolutely. guests you're going to have next. Yes. Thank you very much. It has been real pleasure, real pleasure. And I look forward to following the journey.